Good morning. Greetings in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank God for bringing us together this morning to worship Him and to hear His ancient words, ancient words that sanctify us, that um, draw us to Him, that help us to to know Him and to worship Him as He requires in His Word. Um, it is a joy indeed to open up God's Word and um, to be informed by what God has to say to us in His Word. We've been going through um, the Gospel according to Mark, um, titled uh, Seeing the Son of God. Seeing the Son of God, we are now in chapter 2. We have made a bit of progress. Chapter 2, today we're looking at verse 13 to verse 17. Mark chapter 2, we're looking at verse 13 to, to verse 17. And uh, we're going to look at it uh, from the title, The Scandal of Grace. The Scandal of Grace. Let us take this time and present it to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, we want to thank you, Father, for this opportunity that you've given us to draw near to you. We thank you for your blessed words, O Lord, and we pray that our hearts will truly be opened, O Father, to hearing you. Shape us, O Lord, make us a people that truly um, seek to honor you, that seek nothing but your glory. Lord, we pray that you work in our hearts as we hear your word. You work in my heart as I deliver your word. Glorify your name today. In the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. These are the words of John Newton. Um, that were written by him. If you don't know John Newton, John Newton was, before coming to the Lord, a slave trader. This was his occupation. He was a vile man. He was a vile man who went to African countries to steal human beings and take them and sell them in slavery. But there was a point in his life when John Newton heard about the grace of God as he read the word, and his heart was struck with conviction, and he came to the knowledge of Christ. Indeed, as he pens these words, saying amazing grace, and he talks about himself being a wretch, He truly comes to the knowledge of his nature. He sees himself as as blind and having been given sight, spiritual sight. He sees himself as having been lost and now being found. Probably bringing out the idea of that one lost sheep that Christ went for. He sang about this grace of God, calling it amazing. But 
There are some people, and I still even hear them today, who think that John Newton didn't deserve it. There are people who don't get excited when sinners are shown grace. What excites them is God showing his wrath to sinners and their enemies. The, the idea of God showing grace to a sinner, the idea of God showing grace to someone who was oppressive, to, especially to those who experience the oppression themselves, when they think about that, it scandalizes them, doesn't it? We see the story of another man here in Mark chapter 2 who also went through the same thing. A man that was truly hated by the society that he was in, Levi, the text collector. Let us look at the passage and read. I read from the ESV, Mark chapter, 30, chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. Follow me as we hear God's word. This is God's word. Let us hear him. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the text booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. You will notice in this passage that there are two settings, right? There's the setting of uh, beside the sea that we see in verse 13, and all of a sudden there's a change in setting, and um, Mark says, as he reclined, at the table in his house. So there are these two settings. And in these settings, we see Jesus' interaction with Levi and Jesus' interaction with the scribes and the Pharisees. This is a text that breaks into four. Um, the first will be uh, in verse 13 that we see there. Remember that Mark wants to show us, one of the things that he wants to show us about Jesus he wants to show us a man who is busy with the Father's work. He, he, he wants to show us a man who is consumed with declaring the message of the kingdom. You'll notice in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, the first thing that he does as he appears on the scene, he declares the gospel. He starts preaching the gospel. In verse 21, when he went into Capernaum, the, the Bible tells us that he was teaching when he entered the temple. He, it, he was teaching them. Again, um, as, as, as um, he was 
with the disciples and people were looking for him. This is what he says in verse 38. He says to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came and he went um, and preached in Galilee. In chapter 2, verse 2, we remember that as he went back to Capernaum, that the people gathered to see miracles. And what was he doing? Uh, um, Mark tells us that he was preaching the word to them. He was preaching the word to them. Jesus was concerned about people hearing the message of the kingdom. According to Jesus, the world that he had come to was a gospel-hungry world. And he came to give us the riches of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we also live in a gospel-hungry world. We, We live in a gospel-hungry world, and we would do well to pay attention to the words of the gospel. We would do well to pay attention to the words of God. There are so many pulpits today that are filled with so many messages about the gospel. People preach politics from the pulpit. They preach prosperity from the pulpit. They preach psychology from the pulpit. But you don't hear the gospel. In other words, there is hunger in the land. People are languishing. People are hungry for the truth. So many pulpits, yet so little truth. Jesus comes on the scene He sees the world hungry for the gospel. And what does he do? He comes and he preaches. He says, this is why I came. Look at verse 13. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him. And what was he doing? He was teaching them. He was teaching them. But what we will see with this story, with the calling of Levi, is that this is not the first time Jesus calls someone, right? In chapter 2, we saw the calling of the four disciples. And now there is the call of Levi, the text collector. But what results is that there is a confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees. The passage we will consider today focuses on the first um, scandal that Jesus starts to experience. The first scandal is scandal over sinners, the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace. And I think there is much help in these verses for God's people and lost people alike. So let the word of God speak to your heart as we study these verses together. These verses, as I said, they break into four scenes. The first, we see Jesus and the text collector. Levi is the man, and we see that in verse 14. Listen to to, to this. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the text booth. And he said to him, follow me. What happens next? And he arose. And followed him. Oftentimes, when we read the Bible, we just pass by the words and don't think about their significance. As Jesus walked along the shores of Galilee, 
he passed a man named Levi, who was working at the booth where taxes were collected. And since Copenhagen was on, on, on the, the caravan route between east and west, a lot of trade traffic passed through the town. Taxes were collected on everything that passed through the town. Taxes would also be levied against the fish that were being caught on the Sea of Galilee. Levi had probably collected taxes from Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Levi was a tax collector. He worked for the Roman government, collecting taxes for the empire. The Romans came, they came up with a tax quota for each province in the empire. They, they allowed their nobles to, 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 to bid on the contracts for collecting the taxes in each area. The, these nobles usually hired locals to collect the taxes. And as long as they met their quota, Rome didn't care how much more they collected. As a result, the tax collectors became rich from this business. They collected taxes for Rome and they collected taxes for themselves. Remember the story of Zacchaeus, how he was rich from this and yet he was despised. These tax collectors in, in, in the Jewish world, there were two words that were used to refer to tax collectors. There was the mokes and then there was the gabai. The gabai was a normal tax collector who comes and does the work and leaves. The mokes was the thief. The, the mokes was the worst of the worst. The, the, the mokes was considered worse than a murderer. And, and the reason for that, the reason the mokes was despised it is because he was a Jewish man who worked for Rome, the enemy state, to, to take advantage of his own people. In fact, tax collectors like Levi were not even allowed to do, get into the temple. But they were not even considered people. They were despised and hated. With the Jewish people, they were a monotheistic people. For them, Yahweh was Lord. And for, for the Rome, for the Romans, Caesar was Lord. To to, to um, work for Rome to take advantage of your own country was the same to the Jewish people as saying Caesar is Lord and Yahweh is not. So they hated them. They were notoriously dishonest. And in ancient Rome, there was actually a monument erected to honor one honest tax collector. One. Because Levi was a tax collector for Rome, he was among the most despised people in Israel. He was viewed as a traitor to his people and to his nation. And as a tax collector, he would have been isolated even from the community. 
He would not have been allowed, as I said, to go to the temples or the synagogues. He was a social outcast who could only socialize with other tax collectors and rank sinners. He was a hated man in Copernum. They text anything that they could text. They would text the number of fish that you caught, the, num- the number of legs that your donkey has. They, they would text anything. They would make up an excuse to text anything they possibly could. I would imagine that Levi was also a disappointment to his parents. He was from a tribe of Levi and would have been raised to serve in the temple. Or he would have been trained in the scriptures to be a scribe. And I'm sure that Levi's parents had great expectation for their son. That they hoped that he would follow in his father's footsteps to be a religious man. Instead, Levi became a traitor, turning his back on his family, his nation, and his God. The man we are introduced to in these verses is a wicked man. He is defiled, despised, disillusioned, and he is a disappointment. In other words, Levi doesn't have anything to commend himself to the Lord. His life is wrecked and ruined. But grace is like that, isn't it? Praise the Lord, grace is like that. God came for those who are despised by the world. God came for those who are in darkness. And, 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 and you, you will notice here that Jesus, as he is teaching, Mark tells us that Levi is sitting by his booth, probably overhearing what Jesus is saying. As Jesus passed by, he issued a simple command to Levi. Follow me. Follow me. This is a present tense command. It literally means be following me and keep following me. It is a call to Levi to leave his old life behind and begin a new life of following Jesus. Why would Jesus have any use for a man like this? There's only one word that can answer that question, right? Grace. In in spite of his occupation, his lifestyle, his failures, and his sin, Jesus loved Levi and he called him to a new life. Jesus sets a good example for the rest of us, doesn't he? He was walking and looking for someone to touch as he went about his day. That same desire, brothers and sisters, to share Jesus should mark the lives of his children. We must always be looking for opportunities to tell people about Jesus. We must always be looking for opportunities to share the gospel with people. I wonder if you're doing that. I wonder if that is a desire that consumes your heart. When was the last time you told anyone about Jesus? I'm glad that Jesus came for the lost. I'm glad Jesus loves the lost. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that Jesus calls lost sinners to come to him without regard to who they are or what they have done. 
I'm glad that he has left the door open for whoever believes in him. And he has promised that, that he, he, he has promised to turn no one away who will come to him. Before we move deeper into these verses, there are a few lessons that I need to comment on here. Notice that no one is beyond hope. Right? No one is beyond hope. I'm sure that most people in Copernham had given up on Levi. Right? The, the, the good religious people of the city snubbed him as they passed by and wrote him off as a lost cause. Jesus, however, knew that his life could be rescued. Jesus loved him in spite of his past and, and his problems. And, and he delivered Levi from the bondage of sins and gave him a new life. No one is beyond the reach of a redeeming Lord. Secondly, I want you to see that Jesus knows how to reach your wayward loved ones. Levi's parents did not know how to reach their son. They had done the best they could in raising him and, how they, and now they feel helpless to save him. They may have given up all hope. He was making money and he was powerful and they had no way to get his attention. Jesus, however, knew where he was and he knew how to reach Levi. One word from the master and, and Levi's life was changed forever. The, the, the Lord knows where your loved ones are and what it will take to reach them. Never give up. In his time and in his own way, he will touch them for his glory. I was here at some point with my dad. We were praying for him and praying. And I must confess that at some point, I gave up in my heart. I even started convincing myself that maybe he's a reprobate. Uh, maybe he's never going to be saved. But at his time, God drew him to himself. No one is beyond the reach of God. No one. That is why, brothers and sisters, we must be consumed with a desire to make Christ known. We, we live in a world that is hungry for truth. People, so, there are some people that think they have the truth. And they cannot, they, they, there's, a, there's a deception that is so deceptive, that is so deeply deceptive. This deception is holding onto a lie and thinking it is the truth. That is the worst deception that you can ever be under. And God has called us to them. Thirdly, I want, to, I want you to see that Jesus sees the hidden potential in the lives of the lost. Jesus saw something in Levi that no one else could see. This man would have given a name was given a new name after he was saved, right? He would become known as Matthew, remember? Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. Um, he is Matthew. He would be a faithful follower of Jesus. 
and he would write the first gospel account. Have you noticed, have you read through Matthew? How intricately woven it is. How detailed, how, how structured, how, how there's, it's, it's <laughs> Jesus takes this man who is working with Texas and he uses him differently. All that religious training in the Old Testament would also have come in handy. Right? One of the key words in the Gospel of Matthew is this was to fulfill what the prophet says. If you read through Matthew, you'll notice that he keeps saying that. When he says something, he says this was to fulfill and he quotes the Old Testament. Consider where you are today. You are there because he loved you. He saved you. He released you from your hidden, he released your hidden potential. And some of you, he's still releasing your hidden potential. Lastly, I want you to see that it is impossible to know what is happening in an individual's heart. I, I get the, the, the idea that along with all of Levi's problems, he was disillusioned and disappointed with his life. When Jesus called him, you, you don't see Mark writing that he started packing his stuff. He left it there. He did not hesitate, but he left everything to follow Jesus. And Levi, if you think about it, gave up more to follow Jesus than the rest of the disciples. The others could go back. Right? They, they, they could go back. They, 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 they could go back to fishing. Fishing was still something. And we know that when, when Jesus Christ uh, died, they went back to fishing, right? Levi made a clean cut, a permanent break from his past. He left it all. Apparently, God has already been working on Levi's heart before Jesus passed by the day, he, he probably had heard Jesus preaching. He heard about the miracles and about the changed lives, and he knew that what God had done for others, God could do for him. When Jesus came calling, Levi was more than ready to follow. It's amazing that today we have so many Christians who claim the name Christians but are not following. They are walking in their own lanes, as the saying, uh, the popular saying today. They are in their own lanes. Jesus is going that direction, they are going their own direction. They are, are making up their own rules. See, when Jesus calls you to follow, one of the indications that you are his disciples would be following him. He immediately becomes your Lord. 
The, the idea of following means that you, you strip away yourself of all your independence. You, you depend upon him. He is your Lord. He controls your life. He's in charge. He's the master. Today, we make Jesus a token master. We can sing about him as a master. We can sing about him as Lord. But our hearts are far from calling him Lord. Our hearts are far from submitting to him as Lord. Mark changes the scene from the sea besides the sea, to now at Levi's house. Levi's heart is changed. And what is the next thing that he does? He invites his friends. Look at verse 15. We see now, secondly, Jesus and the party. Mark throws a party. This verse paints a strange picture. The Lord Jesus is invited to Levi's house for dinner. On the one hand, you see you have Jesus and his many followers. On the other hand, you have Levi and his friends and associates. When you are shunned from the community, the people you usually hang out with are the people that are also shunned. <laughs> the people that are ready to receive you are the people that are also shunned. And now they see Levi. His life has changed and he invites them. It's like, you know, as the saying goes, it's like the, the beggar who has found where the bread is and he calls other beggars. He calls his associates. Some of those present were the text collectors and some are called sinners. The word was used to refer to prostitutes and to those who did not observe the strict religious rules of the scribes and the Pharisees. This dinner was attended by the people Levi knew and worked with. They were his friends and associates. The text collectors and sinners were the only people who would have anything to do with him. But this was about to change. Levi hosted his this party as an opportunity to say farewell to his old life and as an opportunity to introduce his friends and associates to Jesus. His life has changed and he wants everyone else to know. A Levi is not an incognito Christian. He is not a hidden Christian. He wants everyone to know. <laughs> One time I was... <laughs> I was walking with, uh, we were from church, and we were walking. Uh, it was a group of us, and uh, there was a lady. We passed by another church building. There was a lady inside cleaning. And as we, we were going, we were young people. There was a car that drove by, and the car stopped. This guy saw this lady in the church, and he opened his window and, and called out to her. And in surprise, you're saying, you too, go to church. And she responds by saying, I've been a Christian for so many years. He says, I didn't know that. 
Are you sure? <laughs> Today we have incognito Christians. We have um, James Bond Christians, right? <laughs> you are there, but people don't really know who you are. <laughs> that is not Levi. Levi wants everyone to know. He's so happy he wants everyone to know about it. He wants his friends to meet Jesus. He wants them to experience the same change of life that he himself has experienced. I mean, if your spiritual thirst is quenched, won't you call others? If your spiritual hunger is, 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 is filled, won't you call others to come to the bread of life? He wants others to know. He wants others to come and, and experience the peace of knowing Jesus. He wants others to come and experience true rest in him. Is that your desire? Sometimes it's probably because we are not really experiencing rest, eh? Ourselves. We are just traditional Christians. Right? Just because my family went to church. And so this has been the tradition of my family. And we go to church. We sing kumbayas and hallelujahs and all that. But there's nothing in the heart. There's nothing that truly says amazing grace, how great. How great this amazing grace that saved the wretch like me. There's nothing that says that. It's just routine. We are on the clouds. Meeting Jesus will change your life. When he saves your soul, you want everyone else to know what he has done for you. It is the most amazing news. You want everyone else to have what you have. When the leper in chapter 1 verse 45 was healed of his leprosy. And Jesus even said to him, don't tell anyone. What did he do? He ran around and spread the news. He wanted everyone to know. Uh, this verse here in verse 15 finds Jesus in a setting that few good people would have been. When you think about the people who were invited to that dinner, you get the idea of the atmosphere. That there were tax collectors and rank sinners there. And where you have sinners, you have the potential for sin. Jesus did not partake, obviously, in their wicked ways, but he did not isolate himself from sinners either. He spent time with them in an effort to win them to himself. He wanted them to know him. And what a contrast it is to the church, isn't it? We build our buildings, erect our walls. Let me actually um, use this. Um, before we, 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 we came, there was a guy outside sitting there and uh, there was two of them, and I got out to the car, and I saw him coming to me. 
and uh, he asked me if he can make a call um, because they are waiting for someone to come pay them and they don't know if this person has run away with their money. I didn't have airtime, so I invited him into the church. And as I am going with him, he is stopping behind me. And I'm saying, why are you stopping? He says, this is a church. I'm like, yeah, so? He moves again, gets to the gate, wants to stop at the gate. I'm like, no, come. And he gets and he moves there. Uh, uh, No, come. And then I turn to him and I ask him, why are you saying this is a church? Why don't you feel like you can come in? He says, people like me are not welcome here. That really put me aback. And, and I kept saying, come, come. And I, and I took him to Tony. Tony helped him. Unfortunately, he, he left because the guy came and paid them. This is how people feel because of the church. The church is a place that should be welcoming people. But we've made it a place for the elite. We, we've made it a place for the elite where only the righteous can come in. But Jesus did not do that, did he? He went there where the lost way. He won their confidence and he changed their lives. You see, we, we, we really aren't carrying out the Great Commission when we build a church and start having services alone. That's not the Great Commission. We are carrying out the Great Commission when we take the Gospels into the highways and the edges and compel the lost to come to Jesus. I praise the Lord that he wasn't ashamed to associate with me. Jesus loved me like I was and he came to me to win me to him. May the Lord help us all to become more like Jesus. May he give us a heart to win the lost at any cost. May he help us to go to the lost where they are and take the gospel to them so that some may be reached for Jesus. But verse 16 shows us something different. We see Jesus and the problem now. The problem at the party. In verse 16, not everyone was thrilled about the lost decision to have dinner with a bunch of sinners. The, the religious leaders used this as an opportunity to attack the Lord Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees would never have spent time with sinners. They were strict in their observance of the Mosaic law. They were also very strict in their observance of the oral traditions handed down by the elders of the Jews. They followed a moral code that was nearly impossible to keep. One group of Pharisees known as, there's a group of Pharisees that was known as the blind and bleeding Pharisees. They would wear blindfolds where they went out, when they went out of their homes. They were so afraid of seeing a woman and having lust in their hearts that they walked around in the dark and often were falling and getting injured. That's why they call them the blind and bleeding Pharisees. 
This man would never have been caught dead having dinner with a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. Sounds a lot like a lot of churches and Christians I know. Some people and churches are so separated and so self-righteous that they often look down their noses at lost people or even other Christians who don't live like they do. Some people forget that they were just as bad or worse than the lost, uh, than the lost before the Lord saved their souls. Do you know what our problem is? It is the same problem that these people had. It is called hypocrisy. We are in trouble spiritually when we think we have reached a place where we are better and more righteous than others. The critics try to make matters seem worse than they were. The, 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 the verb that is used here when they say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The, that verb eat is in a tense that could be translated always eating. Why is he always eating? They wanted to make it seem like Jesus spent all his time with sinners. They tried to make it sound like Jesus himself was a sinner. The scribes and Pharisees attacked Jesus for spending time with sinners. Their criticism actually was a compliment. I thank God that, he, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Thank God that he came to seek and save the lost. Thank God that Jesus didn't allow the criticism of a bunch of righteous hypocrites to deter him from his mission. That the first time these religious men criticized the Lord, they did so in their hearts. Remember in, in, in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7? In their hearts, they were saying, why is this man blaspheming? Why is he saying this? This time they are bolder. They are saying it out loud. They take, they take their criticisms to the lost disciples. It won't be long until they attack Jesus to his face. So in response to this, we see in verse 17, Jesus and the pronouncement. Jesus and the pronouncement. Look at verse 17. As Jesus responds to them, he says, When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. When Jesus had their criticism, he did not allow them to go unchallenged. In fact, Jesus makes a bold pronouncement that he will define his approach to reaching the world. Jesus tells his critics that he is like a doctor. He is treating the sick and trying to help them get well. And what kind of a doctor refuses to help the sick people? The scribes and Pharisees are like a lot of religious people in our day. They, they were willing to sit back and wait for the lost to come for help. Jesus, on the other hand, was making house calls. He, he went where the sick were. He reached out to them. That is just what he did when he came to me, when he came to you. I was sick and diseased. My life was ruined. I was terminally ill. In fact, I was already dead when he found me. Remember what Ephesians chapter 2 says? We were dead in our sins and trespasses. But Jesus loved me in, my, in spite of my condition. He came to where I was and gave me blood transfusion. He applied his blood to my life and washed away my sins and saved my soul. He removed 
the heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh. He made me well because he is the great physician. He, he specializes in healing the greatest disease known to man. He specializes in healing sick souls. And I don't know, when you hear that, there's no way that you can't sing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved the wretch like me. When Jesus answered the criticism of these men, he also leveled the criticism against them. But I don't think they recognized it. Jesus tells them that his mission, his ministry and his message was not for good people, but for those who are bad. He reminds them that he did not come for those who are well, but for those who are sick. The, the scribes and Pharisees could not see their own sin. They were blind. The worst ignorance is not knowing that you don't know. They could see the faults of everyone around them, but they could not see that they needed help too. They believed that as long as the outside was clean, the inside didn't matter. They were dead wrong. That they believed that their religious activity was enough to guarantee their salvation. Again, they were dead wrong. They, they needed to be saved just like Levi and the rest of those tax collectors and sinners. You see, at the cross, there is no, there's, there's no uh, um, aisle for the Pharisees and the, uh, uh, and the scribes and an aisle for tax collectors and sinners. They are in one place. They are equal before God. If you get nothing that I said today, and I know I said a lot of things, and it's easy to forget, right? Get this one. Your religion, your works, your righteousness, your whatever, will never be enough to save you. Until you have trusted Jesus Christ for your salvation, you are lost. And you will never be saved until you understand that truth. It is not about the fact that I come from this tradition, right? Some people say, you know, I, I, I am a Baptist. We, we, I grew up in a Baptist church, and so my family are Baptists. It is not about that. You can be a Baptist and a good Baptist and go to hell. It's not about that. Jesus will not want your Baptist card when you get to heaven. It's not about that. Salvation is a simple thing. Believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is all that is required. However, be before you believe, you first have to see your need of a savior. People who go to the doctor, don't go to the doctor to just check on him. They see that there's a need. They see that they are sick. They need to be healed. You must be willing to confess your sins, as 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says. And you must be willing to call on Jesus Christ. You can be saved, but you've got to get lost first. The plan of salvation is, is available to all who can see and admit their need of a Savior. If you are sick, you can be made well. Let me conclude by telling you a story. When William Booth the founder of the Salvation Army felt the call of the Lord to go into the streets of London and begin ministering to street people. He stood in a Methodist conference meeting 
and requested permission from the presiding bishop to be released from his church to go into the streets and preach. The bishop had the request and denied it, telling, telling Booth that they would not waste a man of his education and talent on the people of the streets. Upon hearing this, Booth sat down, re resigned to defeat. His wife was seated in the balcony because women were not allowed on the first floor. She stood up and leaned over the rail. She called to her husband and told him to listen to God and not to man. She vowed to stand with her husband against every foe. And to that I say thank God for women. She came down from the balcony and Booth took her by the arm and they left the building to go into the streets to win people to Jesus. He, he, he was ready to quit, but his wife, a lady who usually stayed into the, in, in the background, stepped out of the shadow of her husband to hold his arm at a critical time in his life. And many souls were saved and lives changed around the world because of William Booth and his wife willing to cross the line to reach the lost. And I praise the Lord that Jesus Christ crossed the line for me. Praise his name that he loved me enough to die for me on the cross. Friend, if you're here and you don't know the Lord, Jesus Christ has crossed the line for you. If you have never been saved, but you see your need, come to Jesus and he will save your soul. Maybe the Lord is calling you to cross the line to reach someone also, dear believer, for his glory. Today would be a good day for you to get busy with what he has called you to do. He wants his gospel taken out of the church into the places where the lost live. He wants us to reach out to them where they are. Maybe you have been guilty of judging others by your own standards. Isn't it time you started reaching out to sinners and stopping, uh, stopped look down, uh, stopped looking down on them? Isn't it time you repented of your own hypocrisy and ask the Lord to give you a heart like his, a heart that is compassion for the lost. We should not be people that when heaven is celebrating over a lost sinner who has come to Christ, that we are complaining that he was a slave trader. We should rejoice with heaven that a sinner has come to know Christ. Amen. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, indeed it is grace, O oh Lord. It is grace. You did not listen to the religious world to get their permission and to hear from them if you could save us. You did it because you are full of grace and you showed us great love and our hearts truly rejoice. Help us love you and honor you, Lord. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen.